Well, good morning. We're continuing uh, a series that I kind of dreamed up uh, several years ago, and I've always wanted to kind of take a run at Christmas. Kind of, that's the best way to look at it. Rather than start with the nativity scene and open up to the Gospels and read the story of Christ's birth, I, I've always wanted to go back and look at the backdrop and look at the history behind and the prophecies concerning Jesus. And so this series of messages out of Isaiah is to accomplish that very thing, to take a running start, to look at the backdrop and the background to who Jesus is and who he was predicted to be come for us. And so each week we've been looking at that. And in chapter 7 and in chapter 9, we looked at the fact that a virgin will have a child over 800 years before it actually happened Isaiah prophesies that a, that a woman will have a child. And this child, that the, that the nations will rest upon this child, the power of this child, and yet the humility and vulnerability of the child. And as Dorothy Sayers reminds us why Jesus took on human form. He took on human form as a child to relate to us. As she says, he took his own medicine. The medicine that we all have to deal with and suffering in this world, he took it upon himself. And then, then in chapter 11, James gave us a beautiful picture of the shoot that comes out of the felled forest. Everything is laid low. It's a disaster. It is a crisis. And yet out of it comes the hope of a shoot. And remember, James gave us a picture of Israel, this very insignificant part, and he, he kind of showed us by holding up the back of his hand a picture of the ancient Near East and where all the empires are and where Israel is in between the empires and how small Israel is. I actually thought he was going to have you all outline your hand and make a turkey out of it. Don't you remember as a kid you used to make a turkey out of your hand? No, I guess none of you did that, but I did. But he really stepped up his game and gave you an historical monument there that you'll always know where Israel is, right here, between the ancient Near East and the ancient Near East of Egypt and the Hittite civilization and, and Syria and Babylon and all of that and how sick, in, small but yet significant Israel is. And out of Israel will come this Messiah. And today we learn in chapter 42, the king will come. Jesus is not just a child. He's not just the shoot of Jesse that comes out of disaster. But he's also a king, a powerful, powerful king. Yet when you read Isaiah chapter 42, you get the idea as you're reading this that this is a different kind of king. This is radically different than any king you can imagine. I mean, if you have your texts open to you or if you have the outline in front of you, you can, you can actually follow along because it says, Behold, my servant. Jesus is called the servant. These are the servant songs that reference this one who is Jesus who will be the servant. As you know, in Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter 10, 45, Jesus calls himself a servant. And yet here in Isaiah, he is referenced as the servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for him. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched out the earth. Later it says, he will be the light to the nations, in verse 6, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, those who dwell in darkness from the prison. See, this is a picture of a servant who is a king. I mean, when you think of that, justice and compassion, the light to the nations, the future, vision, healing, restoration. Those are only things a king can do. So Jesus was portrayed in chapter 42 and then again in 49, and we'll look just briefly at 49. But God's grand plan is to bring salvation into the world for all nations through a Messiah who will be a different kind of king. And that's what I want you to understand this morning. And I wonder, well, how do I illustrate this? How do I get us to understand what that looks like in a world, in a, in a culture that doesn't really understand what it looks like to be, have a king? We don't have kings. We just don't live in that context to truly understand what that's like. Especially a servant king. This kind of a king. But then I remember reading many years ago Chuck Colson's book, Loving God. Chuck Colson, as you know, was part of the Watergate scandal. He was part of the, the Nixon White House and, and ended, ended up having to go to prison for his involvement at Watergate. And that's when he gave his life to Christ and wrote Born Again. And then he, he wrote Loving God. And it's, a, it's various snapshots of individuals through history that he has found that have portrayed what it looks like to love God. And one particular moment in time uh, stands out to Chuck Colson. And he talks about a moment, a summer in June of 1981 in Washington, D.C. And it was uh, not just the capital, Washington, D.C., where the power brokers of the world meet. But it was Anacostia, a section of Washington, D.C.'s that sits on a bluff overlooking the capital city just across the river, the imposing capital itself, Anacostia, a ghetto of hunger, crime, drugs, hopelessness. Might as well be a continent away, as he describes it. And Mother Teresa arrives. She had won the Nobel Peace Prize. She was invited to the White House. She shows up, and in the limousine, she instructs them not to go to the White House, but actually to go to the slums. She diverts the caravan into the slums, all of the uh, uh, reporters, news reporters, show up and start asking questions, and there's all this commotion going on at a small little Catholic church. And one reporter says, what do you hope to accomplish? And she says, the joy of loving and being loved. Another one asks, what, what's it going to cost? And she says, it doesn't cost anything. It just takes a lot of sacrifice. And the conversation went on, and uh, everybody's attention was now toward this frail, 70-year-old Albanian nun who you would think had no power in the world, 
And yet she had all the power in the world. And all the powerful people in the world had their attention, turned their attention to her. That is a picture of the servant king, Jesus, that we worship, that we anticipate this Christmas season. That's the picture I want to paint in your mind. Many years later, a brother in the order came to Mother Teresa complaining about a superior whose rules he felt were interfering with his ministry and had this conversation with Mother Teresa and, and said to Mother Teresa, my vocation is to work for lepers. I want to spend myself for lepers, he says. She stared at him a moment and then smiled. Brother, she said gently, your vocation is not to work for lepers. Your vocation is to belong to Jesus. There's a radical difference. And what I discover in the Gospels, in the grand story of the Bible is this, that Jesus is king so you don't have to be. So your response doesn't have to be, I work for lepers. I have to do the work of a servant king. You don't have to do that because Jesus has already done that. And we're going to learn what that looks like. You don't have to do it. All you have to do is take Mother Teresa's advice. And that is, fall in love and belong to Jesus. Because when you fall in love with the king and belong to Jesus, everything falls in line. And I think we've had it backwards. I think we've been trying to act like the king rather than fall in love with the king for who he is and allow our lives to simply exemplify the values and the nature of the king who is who he, who he is and what he stands for, living that out in our own lives. Does that make sense? It radically changes the way we approach a text, a prophecy like this one in Isaiah. My servant whom I uphold. Not you, not me, but Jesus the King. We don't go off and try to do something grand for God. We simply adore the one that is the King, who brings the kingdom so that we can live in it. And then through our lives and our relationship with the king, exemplify the values and the nature of the king that we're going to look at this morning. C.N.T. Wright wrote a book, How Jesus Becomes King. And he, what he argues in this little book is, is how is between Jesus' birth and his death and resurrection is the gospel story. Right? So you have his birth and you have his death and resurrection. And he calls all the little bits in between is the biographies, the four biographies of the life of Jesus. And what is the point of all that? And, and Wright argues the very point of that is to show that Jesus came to bring the kingdom on earth to be the king. You remember the scene in Matthew 21 when the people, as Jesus rides the colt and the donkey into Jerusalem, what do they do? They line the streets, they lay down the palm branches, the palm fronds, remember that? They lay them down and Jesus walks 
it was, it was the signification that a king was arriving. The king of Israel, the king of God's kingdom is coming into Jerusalem the pres- where the presence of God is. The temple represented the presence of God on earth. Jesus is coming in and being worshipped as that king. The whole story is about how Jesus becomes that king and brings the kingdom of God into the world today. And this is what Isaiah is saying. His life and his kingdom and his kingship will be like this. Here it is. He will, number one, bring justice. But a very different kind of justice than you think. That's in verse one. And then in verse three, he is a compassionate healer. He is a king who compassionately heals. And then we also learn that he is a king of vision. We need to understand what that means. It's in verse 6 and 7. And then he's a restorative suffering king, going back to verse 4 and on into chapter 49. We have this idea that he restores through his suffering. And if you want to have a good king and follow a good king and follow King Jesus, these are the four things that you are to look for. These are the four things that that we are to to pause and and wonder, bring wonder to, and, and actually adore him for. Let's look at these things. He is king, so we don't have to be. And what we find over and over in this passage And we don't have the time to to go into the detail, but my servant is the King Jesus, the one I'm prophesying about. He will come. The servant is Jesus. He's referred to as a servant. But but you'll notice that within 42 to 49, that that Israel's also the servant. And you're wondering, well, how can Israel be the servant when Jesus is the servant? And what we discover is that Jesus came to do what Israel failed to do. Jesus comes to be the servant the king over the kingdom, Israel was to be that. Israel was to be the light of the nations. Israel was to be the hope of all worlds. Israel was to represent God on earth. And because they failed, Jesus came to be that one, and and he restored all hope. He accomplished all that God wanted through Israel. And so Israel is the servant only because Jesus is the servant. Israel now can live out its purpose because Jesus has taken Israel's place to be the king. And so do we. Do you see that? So let's look at these four briefly and understand the first one is he is a king of justice. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Do you see that? I mean, he will keep work. He will faithfully bring forth justice in verse 3. He continues to bring out, what is justice? Well, there's two kinds of justice. One is this, the just kind of rectifying justice where you, you make things right. And it's almost in a, in a judicial kind of a way of just kind of, of ordering things in a powerful, uh, uh, spoken way. But yet, what we find is a different kind of use of mishpat, the Hebrew word for justice. Oswald, in his 
commentary on Isaiah points out that mishpat literally means a societal order. It's a deeper kind of order. It's not a justice that's a heavy-handed, pressing down kind of justice to make things right. He brings a societal order because he's the servant king. It's a different kind, totally different kind. He calls it a life-giving order. He's not taking life away. He's giving life. He's giving order. When the creation is now functioning in accordance with the design of the Lord, he says. It's a life-giving order that results in a shalom, a peace, a great peace, a blessing. As Tim Keller says, rectifying justice is not necessary because all in society is right and in right relationship because of Jesus. Because Jesus comes as the king, as a justice king, a servant justice king, he makes and will make all things right. That is his job. That is his nature. That is who he is. To bring a shalom, a peace, which is a blessing upon, an ordering. See, in Genesis 3, we lost that. In Genesis 3, it was relational equal equilibrium, we had lost it completely. Everything is out of balance in society. It's like when your body has a problem. One little part of your body throws off the whole body. And what Jesus does is he comes back and he restores the whole body. He's talking about society, restoring all of society, every aspect of it. But notice how he does it. See, you got to see this. He says, he will not cry out or raise his voice, verse 2, nor make his voice heard in the street. It's not this heavy-handedness. It's not a loud public voice. He's not drowning out other voices in the public square. He's not dominating public discourse, is he? I mean, he's, he's going about it in a different way. He's getting the results, but not in a heavy-handed way as you would think a king would do. Make orders. Make it happen. He does it in a totally different way, and it looks powerless. It's quiet. It's soft. There's power behind the way he does it. He brings peace through meekness. I didn't discover this, but I learned of this this week and read a little bit on the life of Martin Luther King Jr. from this perspective. And what I learned is there were two things about his life. He was assassinated in 1968. The 60s were a crazy decade, were they not? I mean, 1963, one of my favorite books is the story of C.S. Lewis, Aldous Huxley, and JFK all dying on the same day. November 11, 1963, they all passed away the same day. And the book I read was they all met up in the afterlife and hashed out their worldviews, and, um, and a fascinating book. But uh, that was 1963. The 1968 Martin Luther King was assassinated. 1969 would be Woodstock and Charles Manson, Apollo 11, Lunar Man, landing all sorts of life-changing, culture-changing kinds of, of things happen in the 60s. And I was just getting my start in the 60s, so I kind of missed a lot of this, but I, I saw some of it through the eyes of my sisters, and my older sisters, and some of their friends in Vietnam and all of that. And, and, um, and what, um, 
What I've learned about Martin Luther King in recent days is that Martin Luther King believed in two things, the doctrine of sin and the spirit of the servant. And his life was shaped by both. That what Martin Luther King Jr. believed in is that there's a doctrine of sin, that society is corrupt. There's a deep corruptness, an unjust laws and rules of engagement that created an inequality in the world and in America. And he recognized that. But at the same time, he recognized a spirit of the servant. And this is profound. The spirit of the servant is a nonviolent approach to civil disobedience against the unjust laws of the land. And so Martin Luther, in a sense, said, you can turn on the fire hose on us, you can take us to prison, you can beat us, but we won't spit on you, we will love you. But we will keep on disobeying your unjust laws. It was the spirit of the servant king to stand for justice in a way that seems weak, but it was powerful. Jonathan Edwards would describe Jesus in these terms, the excellency of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards would say that a great man or a woman who asks for advice is a great man or a woman. Most great men or women don't ask for advice. A great person is one who sits with the poor, which you normally wouldn't see a great, powerful person sitting with the poor. But what he says is that person is even more majestic for not acting majestic. That's Jesus as the servant justice king. Edward says there is admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. They seem utterly incompatible with infinite highness and infinite humility. That's the excellency of Jesus. He is great enough to become low with us. There is source. That's the source of his beauty. Seems contradictory. But yet that should fill us with worship and wonder of this king. And we should be asking the question, are we, is this being reproduced in our lives? Is this kind of servant justice being lived out in our own life? The second thing that I see here is that he's a compassionate healer. You see that in verse four, uh, 42, verse 3? It says, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. What's that about? I mean, who's the bruised reed and the... the the dimly burning wick, the one that's about ready to go out, the bruised reed. Think of a bruised reed. It's not a bruise, and, and, and uh, this is important to understand. It's not a bruise like we think of a bruise, like just, a, like a, just an outer you know, contusion, light contusion. I'm on a blood thinner, and so I bruise very easily. If I walk by a dresser, I bruise. Like if I see a dresser or the corner of a dresser, I bruise. Or I hit something in the middle of the night, I, there's going to be a bruise. And so I'm covering bruises all the time. And it's just one of the realities of living with, um, with that. But, but this is a different kind of bruise. This is a bruise, the Hebrews describing a bruise that's far deeper. It's, it's a blow that actually hits one of the internal organs and it's, and it's dying. And it's causing the death of the whole body, essentially. And so you're dying from the inside, You've been so badly hit that it's a death blow. That's what it's describing. And and this idea of a dimly 
uh, lit wick, burning wick. It's about, it's flickering, but it's about to go out. It's about to go out. This is, this is a picture of the helpless. This is a picture of wounded people. This is a person in desperate need. And Jesus comes along and says, I will not crush that person out. I will not blow that candle out. I will do the exact opposite. I will bring healing. And we know that's the life of Jesus. He's the life of the healer. And so it's a picture of Jesus coming to the rescue. We learn this by, by studying the 7th century uh, Puritan Richard Sibes, or Sibs. He wrote Bruised Reed. He preached a sermon called Bruised Reed Smoking Flax. And in it, he, he calls Jesus good at all diseases. He calls him the heavenly doctor. Why is he the heavenly? Because he knows everybody's ailment, and he knows how to meet the needs of that person. He tells the story of, remind, reminds us of the story of 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, where we learn of the great and powerful prophet Elijah, who slays the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel at a time in Israel when they lost all hope, and the prophets of Baal had gone out and swayed the people to walk away from God, and the whole country had walked away from God, and God raised up one prophet, Elijah, and finally called upon Elijah and says, go to the mount, call the prophets of Baal, and there we will end it. And the great power of God was displayed over a mass of enemies. And then one woman, the queen, Jezebel, wanted Elijah dead. And he ran for his life to a valley. And he went to sleep and wanted to die. He literally gave up. He went from the peak of victory to the depth of despair. And that is the life of Elijah. And in that moment, when all hope was lost, he was crushed. Ministry was over for him. He didn't want anything else in life. He stopped eating. He slept. And God knew exactly what he needed. Sends an angel and twice feeds him. A meal? Yeah, a meal. He knew exactly what Elijah needed. You need food. You need brain food. You need to be encouraged. You need to get up. You need to eat. And we're going to restore you. See, the compassionate healer is Jesus. He knows exactly how to do it. And, and we're, we, we want to exemplify that. We, we want to live that out, yet sometimes we don't know what to do. We don't know what's the right way to approach another person. We don't want to bring the death blow. We want to bring the healing. I remember a time when I was at Saddleback Church. I was the men's pastor and a big, tall guy, probably in the military, as I believe. And he was probably twice my size, came into my office, and he was very angry. He was angry that his marriage was falling apart, as he saw it, and uh, really wanted to let me have it. And I was wondering what my role was in his marriage but he wanted me to have it. And he, I'm telling you, he was so mad and so big. And I just, I was sitting down and he stood up across my desk. He was like almost ready to reach over across my desk and grab me and just like snuff me out. And I'm thinking, Lord, what in the world do I do? Do I call security? Well, we don't have any security. So I can't do that. 
we got a travel agent, but we don't have any security. Maybe I can totally call the travel agent. Uh, and uh, he'd come over and help. But I didn't know what to do. I really did. I was in one of those moments, Lord, only you know what to do. You have to decide. And, and sure enough, the words came out. I don't know why I said it. I stood up and I said, you need to sit down now and be quiet and listen to me. And I said it very firm and I was waiting for the blow. At any moment, like, okay, I'm done. Boom, I'm going to be out. And he sat down. Somehow, Jesus knew what he needed. He needed strength to match his strength to bring him to a place where he could listen. And he sat humbly like a child. And then he began to weep. And God began to work on his heart. That's what Jesus does in our lives and through us. I find another thing in this passage about Jesus, our king, and he's a king of vision. See, in 6 and 7, he says, he will be the light to the nations. Now, notice this. If you jump over to chapter 49, again, we have it as well, another passage. It says in verse 6, I will also make you a light to the nations. Well, I've always read those two passages. Israel is the light to the nations. It's not Israel. It's capital U, not lowercase u. Capital U is the light. Jesus is the light to the nations. He's the light. And in the middle of 42 to 49, Israel is the witness of the light. You and I are the witness of the light. Jesus is the light. It's a future. It's the picture of God's glory being worked out in the world. That's what light represents. It also represents the future of God's plan being worked out. It's going to be worked out. Why? Because there's light. Because Jesus is that light. And then he calls on Israel to be the witness to that light. Your light is his light in you. It reminds me of a book I read, I think last year, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dwyer. Anthony writes this book about um, during, during the war, Nazi, the Nazi occupation of France. Marie Laurie LeBlanc and her father live in Paris and they find refuge and uh, outside of Paris. And he has been given the task of protecting one of the crown jewels, the heirlooms, uh, a diamond that is very, very valuable, and hides it in a model of the city that they are living in to help his daughter learn how to navigate it if he ever, he's ever gone because she's blind so that she can get around without him. He's the light. She learns how to see through her father's eyes. Get it? That's the story. And that's the story of King Jesus, who is the light of the nations. You see because of him. What you see is because of him. We're blind, but we've been made to see only because of Jesus. And one final thing, here it is. He is the king of restorative suffering. Restorative suffering. You have to go back to verse 4 to see this. 
and then on to 49. But in 42, verse 4, I, I mentioned to you a bruised reed he will not break. So he's not going to crush out and snuff the wounded. He's going to heal them. But notice now in, 40, in 42, 4, he will not be disheartened or crushed. And you're thinking, what's that about? Well, those are the same two Hebrew words that are used in the previous verse to describe the wounded. He is now using, Isaiah is using the same Hebrew words to describe Jesus. So in a sense, what we find is this juxtaposed position. We find the, the idea that the, the bruised reed, the dimly burning wick, now it's the disheartened and the crushed. He will not be. And so it, it puts them in opposite position, but yet the same word is described. The fact that Jesus himself is going to be crushed and bruised, and his light's going to go out too, but not utterly. Not utterly. We know this because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is, people call this the first evangelistic verse in all the Bible. Genesis three fifteen. in the curse... It's described that a serpent will come and the serpent will bruise the heel of the child and yet the child will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, the child will come and be bruised because the child would would be born in human form and have to experience suffering and yet will crush the head of the serpent. So Jesus, in a sense, will take upon himself, the suffering, the bruise, which is probably the bite of the serpent. It's almost as I remember a scene. Uh, I was reading a great book, City of Joy, about Calcutta and Mother Teresa 30 years ago, 25 years ago, with my wife and her, and her family on the Colorado River. We all went to a water ski trip. And uh, we hired a really slow ski boat, so I decided, well, I'm going to read this book instead. And so it was an outboard, and it wouldn't pull anybody up. So it was just like, I'm not going out on that thing. So anyway, so I'm sitting there reading. I got my big hat, brimmed hat. I'm sitting right by the water, and uh, I'm reading this amazing book. And I'm sitting out in the sun. It's a beautiful scene, and all of a sudden, a sidewinder whizzes right through camp. Boom! Just like it thing. It was like on. It was in fifth gear. I mean, it had a turbocharge on it with a prop, and and a, it was like zzz, it was just like wow! I couldn't believe it. I lifted up my legs, and it just. Bam, went right through underneath my legs where I was sitting and went right through camp and was gone. And uh, went back to my book. So um, never thought of, thought of it again until this moment when I thought what I should have done is just boom, stomped on it as it went by, but I was barefoot. But what it would have done is it might have bitten me. But if it bitten me, it would have not have bitten my family. Does that make sense? That's what's going on in this passage, that Jesus is the restorative one who suffers so that we don't have to suffer. He takes our suffering upon himself, yet he won't ultimately be crushed. He will not be diminished because he's going to overpower that. And that's what Jesus will do. He will be bruised on my behalf. And so I bring my pain to him. In verse 14 of chapter 49, after... Israel is being restored. You will be my witnesses. I will do this. I will bring salvation. It's a day of salvation has come. All this is going to happen. Out of darkness you will come. All these good things. And then in verse 14 of chapter 49, 
don't miss this. Here's what happens. But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. No, he hasn't. He has not forsaken you. You just think he's forsaken you. What's going on here is that they think something, they're experiencing something different than they actually think. They know that God is restoring through the prophecies Israel, them. They will be restored, and yet in this moment, they don't experience it. And it's very common for us to know something but not experience it. And you can sit and listen to this whole message about Jesus as the king who has this great compassion and justice and has vision, and, and he's going to restore you through his own suffering. He's going to raise you up. And you know that, and you're going to walk out of here knowing that, but you don't experience it. Let me give you an example, and we're going to close. So one of the side effects of my heart attack is anxiety. Didn't know that would be the case, but it just kind of keeps coming back. And I keep thinking, what's that? Is it returning? Should I be concerned? I feel pain. The brain, worry, fear, anxiety sends a signal right through my central nervous system and it lands on my heart and my stomach, the two places that I've had issues. My surgery, my heart attack, and stents. And so I often feel pain in those two locations and I keep asking the Lord, you know, I'd love to have it on the right side, not the left side. If you could move the pain over here, I'll know what it is and I'll deal with it. But if you leave it here, it feels like something else and then I get more worried and upset and now I feel like i got to go back to my doctor again. And I've been having these dialogues with the Lord for a long time. And then Saul came, this wonderful man that teaches um, counseling ministry, life care ministry, and our church is about to launch amazing ministry. It's already launched life care. It's a mentoring ministry, helping train individuals in our church to mentor others who want to grow. And during the training, a few weeks ago, Saul had us do something, and I went to this section, this session, and he said, I want you to pick an issue, a giant, something so big in your life you can't get rid of it, something you're afraid of, something that's really holding you back. And I want you to start writing right now. Just tell, me, tell yourself about it. What are you afraid of? What's it doing to you? How does it feel? And I started writing and writing and writing. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I know exactly what it is. And I began writing about anxiety and about this issue. And he says, now I want you, and he says, as we're writing, he's giving us more instruction. He says, now what I want you to do is I want you to speak to it. What would you say to it? Talk to it. What would you say? What's it saying to you? And what would you like to say to it? And what I realized in that moment as I began to write I recognize that it's part of me, but it is not me. It is a part of who I am, but it is not me, because God has overcome that. And what I learned in that moment as I'm writing, I began to speak to it, and I said, I know who you are. You're just afraid. You're a part of me that's afraid. You're a part of me that's worrying, and it'll, sometimes it'll just show up. But I'm going to speak to you right now. And I'm not going to get angry at you. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to curse you. I'm not going to tell you to get out of here or be gone. I'm going to tell you to be quiet because there's something more powerful in my life that can control you. And you need to go to him as I am going to him. And I have this conversation over 
and over again. The pool is a sacred place for me in the morning. It's exercise, but it's, it's mental health for me. And as I'm swimming, the one thing I fear is that giant entering the pool with me because it feels a lot like the problems I've had in the last three years, and I don't want to experience those again. And so what I did is I began to speak to it in the early parts of the morning, still dark out. I'm swimming along, and I just speak to it. You have no place here. This is a safe place. This is a place that God and I swim together. This is a place I'm restored. And you don't have a place this morning here. And it goes away. See, Jesus wants to restore you this morning. He wants to commission you to live out the qualities of the king. But you can't do that if you're not experiencing the true nature of the king in your own life. And that's what we need to learn how to do. I'm learning that. Let's pray. As we go to communion this morning, I want to encourage you to go to communion. And maybe you're bringing with you that thing, that issue. could be bitterness. It could be an illness. It could even be a fear of the unknown. But I want you to envision this passage fully encapsulating Jesus in his life. I want you to see Jesus with these characteristics. And he's coming to you, and his arms are open. Father, we want to come into your arms. We want to come into your love. We see you, Jesus, this way. This is what, and you're inviting us in, not as like any other king, but a king that's approachable, a king that wants to love us and restore us and bring healing. But we got to come. So this morning, we come.